of things in this, and, and yet there are some technical things. So we're going to try to work through some technical things first. We know that when, when you are doing inductive Bible study, um, sometimes the drudgery of, you know, marking all the keywords and trying to look for contrasts and comparisons, and th th these things can be a little bit distracting at first. But how many of you could say that apart from the deliberate steps that you must take in order to accomplish this work, that you would find the same treasures of insight. Is there anybody that would like to talk about that this morning? I have a testimony about that? We have some new students, and I'd like for them to hear how important it is. Come on. OK. Thank you. <laughs> You're God's friend, right? <laughs> yes. The precept method has been very good. I mean, I remember years ago when I first started, you were telling me, and I was just starting to homeschool my daughter, that you know this method is good for any study that you're doing on any literature, if you're like a book, report, or whatever you need for your students even, because it slows you down a lot. You're getting all the who's, what's, where's, why, mm -hmm. and you're breaking it down and putting it into Right. So sometimes, I, you know, I feel like in uh, some, so often in my previous experience with Bible study and sermons I would hear and so forth, that without a focused attention on w even just one specific point, it's like there's so much, you get overwhelmed by it. And instead of being able to hone in and say, wow, about one point, Instead, you're just kind of overwhelmed by everything. So for me, the inductive process, and I think that's, it's what you're saying, is that the slowing down and paying attention to the, the details and the points are what eventually, now, the first hour or two you're in the homework, you're still a little bit crazy, right? You're, you're trying to, okay, wait a minute now. Who, okay, who got messed up on those names of the sun? The sun being the same as the name is, I mean, and I'm going, okay, when the names are, and not only the, but like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they're so close, and, we, and when you get to the next one about Shishak and Shimei, and I mean, they're all so familiar, and yet they're, I mean, similar in their sounding to us, and so unfamiliar to us as Americans, those, it's not like Peter and John, you know, or James and John, although they both start with the J, we get it, right? But when you're looking at Shishak and Shimei, it's confusing. So, but I think that when you f slow down and you look at just one person and examine the quality of what that individual, we haven't done this yet, but another thing that we haven't really looked at is these prophets, the faithfulness of God's prophets in the midst of a nation that is being so rebellious. Can you imagine? Uh, we did look last week at the prophet that was sent back to Jeroboam, the man of God, who was not even given a name, but went back into the lion's den, so to speak, into the mouth of the lion's den. 
And there he stood before Jeroboam, and he pronounces a judgment against him, against the altar, and against the worship system that he had established. He took his life in his hands by doing that. And truly, if, if uh, Jeroboam had had his way, what would have happened to the man of God? Seize that man, right? Stuck his hand right out there, and immediately God uh, withered his hand. Thank God goodness for God, his intervention in that man's life in that moment, because the world does not receive the word of God often. Most often, I I heard a news report this morning even of somebody going to speak again on another campus, and they're booed out, and they had to have security guards to go there safely. This is in our own American nation, and all this person wants to do is give their side of a story. Think about the prophet going into the midst of, of northern Israel at that time, those ten tribes who were so rebellious had established their own worship system, and don't you know they were protective of that? And there he goes, he enters into this man's world, stands before the very altar of which he had built with his own hands, and he denounces it. Amazing story. So that is another point we haven't even begun to to touch on. There are so many things that we could look at in this, and I am loving this. Are there any other things about this? Yes, uh, Carrie. That would be cool. That could be very interesting. I kind of did a little bit of that this morning, which is what threw me a little bit late this morning coming in, but because I went back to connect a couple dots like that. Uh-huh. The, the main thing throughout this whole theme of uh, First Kings was God's covenant. And despite how the people acted, um, whether they received the blessings or the cursings, God's covenant broken. That's right. Even at their worst moments when God separated the kingdoms, he always found that he reserved for his sake of his servant David. Yes. That is a key repeated phrase. Yes, it is. In the midst of what we're living in today, where we have so many oppositions um, for the word of God, even in our constitution, when uh, the foundation, the very foundation of our Yeah, yeah, because we have a God who is faithful to his word. It is yes and amen when God speaks. That's right, in spite of, and not only that, not only um, in spite of us, but truly in spite of us, God still gets it done. He often picks people even like, for instance, he chose Jeroboam. He, He went to, did God not know the end from the beginning with Jeroboam? Yes, of course he did. What is God's point in picking a man that he knew, he foreknew, would fail greatly in what he did? He did give him a chance. But besides that, my question is, why? Why choose a man that you, why choose Solomon? Why choose Jeroboam? Did Solomon, (coughs) excuse me, did Solomon succeed any more than Jeroboam? Although Jeroboam said, 
sins were greater, it says in Scripture. We see Rehoboam's sins are even greater than that before him. It seems, I mean, there's, there's a, a proofing of what God says, and that is by generation and generation as the years go by, we as humanity degenerate into deeper sin. But yet, my question is to go back to the initial choosing. What is God doing? Okay, it is, absolutely. Okay, so basically he wants us to see that when we put our faith and trust in men, do you remember what God said to Israel way back at the beginning when Israel wanted to have a king? What did God tell them? Yeah, so what was the big complaint with Jeroboam when he went to his... his, uh, his predecessor, Rehoboam, and he said, Rehoboam, please do what for us? Lighten the burden that Solomon has put on us. Solomon has put such a heavy thumb on us, has put such a heavy workload on us. We need the, the burden of our work lightened. And, and what was it that Jeroboam even said? What did he tell him that they, the people would do if that's right. The people would, if, Jer- if Rehoboam would have only lightened the work that Solomon had put upon the, pe- the, the hardship of it, then the people would have been his servant all the days of their life. But Rehoboam listened to bad counsel and refused to do so. So then Jeroboam and his cohorts uh, exiled or exited. Now, we also know God had a plan in this, though, with Jeroboam, and that is that he had chosen Jeroboam to... Uh, as his tool or his instrument for judgment, correct? Who was the judgment against when Jeroboam was given a promise through his prophet, Jeroboam, I'm going to give you ten tribes. Who was he judging? Solomon. Solomon. Unbelievable. Our wise Solomon. The one that in our minds before we did our homework, we were thinking he was just this amazing godly man. Was he a godly man? And the answer is no. What kind of, did he have wisdom that God gave him? Yes. yes. He had wisdom and it had a purpose and God had a design in it. But he was not godly. In the end of his life, in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, it said, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That was God's last word concerning Solomon. Now we've moved on to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. I was listening to a sermon this morning and the pastor was talking about Proverbs chapter 3 and um, I'm wondering if we shouldn't read a little bit of that real quickly because this was written by Solomon to Rehoboam. So, I mean, because he's saying, my son, my son, my son, right? Let's see. Let me go back and read just a little bit of it. Psalms, Proverbs 3. And I don't have any of the verses picked out because I wasn't, I was listening, not following with him. But here, this is really cool because Solomon, who knew the right thing to do, but he himself did not do it. Right? And yet God inspired him to write the written record of God's truth. Right? Because God had endowed him with a spiritual gifting of wisdom. And it was a wisdom that was beyond anyone before him or anyone after him. His wisdom remains to be true regardless of what he himself did or did not do with it. Isn't that an important 
factor to, to put in? Because so often, sometimes people say to me about even things in the New Testament, well, yeah, but Paul said that, and that was his opinion. Well, is that true? Who said, if Paul wrote it, who said it? God said it. Paul was simply the instrument through which God wrote. He is not the author of it. He is the human writer, but God is the author of Scripture, right? So let's see what God said through Solomon to his son Rehoboam here in, in uh, Proverbs 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, speaking of the Lord, now speaking for, through uh, the Lord speaking through him, for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. When I heard him quote that verse, I went, whoa, that's Solomon saying that to Rehoboam. And for us, while we're studying this right now, this is like, really like almost profound because you're, you're thinking, first of all, out of the lips of who came this great wisdom, right? Solomon, who did not do any of these things. And, and he's speaking to who? Rehoboam, who we know. What is the conclusion of Rehoboam's life according to what we've looked at this week? He also did evil. He didn't, his heart was not wholly devoted to God as his father David, meaning grandfather, right? There was another thing I, on another sermon I listened to yesterday when I was walking, um, Bob Utley was talking about these uses of fa the word father and mother in scripture. So often it's not speaking literally as we do in English, but in their concept, the fathers and the mothers of anyone that preceded them are fathers and mothers to them. And I thought about when my grandchildren were babies and still living with me, and they were little, and Michael and Samantha both would call me mama. Because, you know, they couldn't say grandmama. We finally taught Michael to say grandmama. And he'd say, grandmama. <laughs> he was so funny. And I said, but they always had called me mama. And then they would call their mother mommy. So it was mommy and mama. So I was their mama. And in Scripture, we see the same thing. The fathers and the, and the mothers are referred to in that way. So when you see those, con those kind of conflicts as you're looking at the technicalities in Scripture, don't get confused. Just because it says his father or his mother doesn't necessarily mean it's a literal. It can mean a generation or even two previous. So Father Abraham, hundreds of years later, is still Father Abraham, right? Um, okay, so he says, then he goes on to, in 7, concerning Rehoboam's life in the moment that we're looking at it in 1 Kings 14 and 15 and also in Chronicles 11 and 12, think about what's being said here. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Ah! I, it will be healing to your body and refreshing to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Now here might be a moment where we see Rehoboam in chapter 14 seems like he actually or not in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 13 rather. It seems like Rehoboam actually did submit to a discipline moment. Did he not? 
when the prophet came to him and went and disciplined him? He says, so do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, what? He reproves. That's, again, right out of Hebrews, which we did more, more recently. All right, I'm going to stop there. But I just thought, you know what? Um, Linda and I had a little chat, and we were talking about, you know, the value of, of studying Solomon. And it is kind of challenging to kind of get your mind wrapped around the fact that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and yet he wrote all this great wisdom. But think about the power of the knowledge of what you're reading now. When you go into Solomon's writings in Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and you consider his immediate life and, his, and, the, and the short generation that came right after him, the effect, how much effect does a person's faith walk or lack thereof affect the generation that they're living with and the ones that shortly follow? It's huge. Um, can it work both ways? Are you and I responsible to have this kind of an impact? Do you feel the responsibility of this? Or do you, you know, sometimes we can feel insignificant, can't we? About, you know, knowing that, that we have a faith walk and yet we can, we can see ourselves in such a low esteem, I think, sometimes. And part of it is, you know, an attempt to be humble, right? To try to make sure that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But yet, consider your example to your grandchildren, or to your children, or to your neighbor, or to your coworkers, or to those people that even you meet at the grocery store and on the streets. As they are observing your life, I, I, can, I know that my son often has said to me in, in our debates about this, that, um, well, if that's the way a Christian is I don't I don't want to be one why because so often Christians don't behave as Christians right so one of the things we started out when we began this series well we was we talked about the fact that we are going to be looking at a historical record a something that happened in, an event in history that happened a long time ago and and the question could very easily be for some well, what does it matter to me? Who cares about that all, all that ancient history? Well, Precept has over and over said, remember Romans 15, 4, where it says these things are, are recorded for your learning, right? That you would th therefore then walk in a way that would honor the Lord. It's to have an impact and to teach us something. But one of the things that I think that we can do, and we, we have just kind of demonstrated this morning already even, is how applicable those principles are to our life today. Although, yes, we're looking at ancient history. Yes, sometimes it's robotic. You, this is a person. This is the date. This is who we followed. This is who the son was. And, and that can become kind of robotic. But as you meditate on each individual life and the things that occurred in their life and how God dealt with them and then what the result of their life was, and most important to me, the conclusion of their life, at the conclusion of their life, what does God say of them? And at the conclusion of your life, what will God say of you? And that's what we should be examining as we're, as we're studying these things. But the applications, oh my, there are so many. I hardly, okay, we got to get going. Starting on our homework now.
<laughs> okay, so now let's dive into some of the technicals of all this. Now we are looking first, let's see. Um, let's start with 1 Kings 14. We left off last week with uh, Jeroboam, right? And this man of God and what all had happened with Jeroboam and how Jeroboam had uh, been uh, disciplined by God and the, the mighty things that God had done, right? Interesting to me now, it looks like this is, although the end of last week gave us a conclusion to Jeroboam, now 14 seems to back up into his life and give a little more detail about what was going on that led him there, right? We know what about Jeroboam? What has his exposure been to God? What is his history with the, with the Lord God of Israel? Okay, for one thing, we know he's had a prophet come to him. Who is Jeroboam himself? Okay, he's a servant of Solomon. Yes, but yes, he was. And from what lineage does he come from? <laughs> yeah, the son of Neba. He himself is an Israelite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so being a part of the, of the history of Israel, being a part of that nation, when the nation was united under Solomon yet, there was Jeroboam who followed behind, came in behind. Uh, um, and he, as a matter of fact, what did Jeroboam, what was his relationship with Solomon? What happened between him and Solomon just before this? Okay, who came, to, who came to Jeroboam and told him this magnificent prophecy? The prophet did. The, a prophet of Israel came to him and told him, because Solomon has not followed me faithfully, I am about to do what? I am going to rip ten portions of the kingdom from him. Right? He's going to be, rem he's going to be left with two, which is Judah and Benjamin, and what's in Judah? Jerusalem. And one of the qualifiers that God gives to us is a scripture verse that keeps repeating about um, the city itself. And what does God say about that place? It's the place where I chose to put my name and my holy temple, right? And it's the place I chose that you, Israel, shall come to me to worship me in this place and this place alone, right? Okay, so... Jeroboam knows about God of Israel. He was a part of that nation previously. At this point, he is now separated because um, what had happened when the, when the prophet came and said, I'm going to give you ten portions. Yeah, Solomon wanted to kill him. So Jeroboam runs down to Egypt and hides with, with the Egyptian king, ends up marrying his sister-in-law or something like that, right? Okay, which tells me something too. What do you think happened to Jeroboam while he's down in Egypt? He got it. He got Egyptized, right? He got corrupted by the gods of Egypt, by the influences of that culture and nation. And 
certainly they were nice to him while he was down there, and he was certainly living in a fine quality position and situation. So everything was good and pleasing to him about it. Um, I think about my experience going living in Turkey as a military wife. You know, everything, all of my experiences about Turkey were good and pleasing because I was protected by the military umbrella that was over me. So I was there as a U.S. citizen with all, the, with all the power, with all the protections, and with all the blessings that come with being a U.S. citizen, although I was living in a foreign nation, which could be quite hostile to America in general, right? But yet I never saw that. The other thing I saw when I was there and lived there was the people there were really, really nice to me. But why do you think they were always so really, really nice to me? Well, because I have protections, and some people are just enamored by an American being in their presence, right? And I had a lot of money to spend in their stores, right? I mean, in their economy, I, quite truly, truly, I say unto you, <laughs> I was rich compared to most Turks because I had the merc. Okay, so this is what I'm saying about Jeroboam. He went down into this country, and there he was under the umbrella of a king. And if you really dive into the thinking on this, he had all the best experiences possible about being in Egypt. He never feared the king because he was in the king's family. He had all the money he wanted to, and all the all, all the things available to him. So all of that was good. So then when he comes back, he's down there for good reason, however. Solomon wants to kill him. Because God has said to him, I'm going to give you the land. So he comes back up now when he hears that Solomon has died. Rehoboam is about to take the throne. Rehoboam then um, has this encounter with his, his advisors, the two groups of advisors we now know. He takes the bad advice. He goes with the younger group and, and takes their advice. He does not lift the burden that Solomon had put upon the people. And in that moment, this was God setting it up so that Jeroboam would be able to receive the ten pieces of the kingdom because God was in, impugning judgment, just righteous judgment, against Solomon's disobedience and defiance of God. Does that, isn't that amazing? He picked the right man for the job, even though God knew. It's kind of like, do you remember later on when, when all Israel's taken captivity, Daniel and, and Ezekiel and so forth, and they go into their captivity, which, by the way, they're in the middle of their captivity right now when the writing of these records are, are or beyond. Some of the chronicles are even beyond. But for sure, Kings is written in the middle, at least, of their, their captivity. Who is it that, that took them into captivity? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Were they good people? Why did God choose bad people to bring justice and judgment? Mainly, part, part of it may just be because they're, they're so cooperative, <laughs> right? Because bad people are happy to do bad things, right? So thinking about Jeroboam in that regard, why do you think God picked Jeroboam? Because, well, but, but I mean, what does Jeroboam end up doing? He, he is really quick to say, yay, God, let's divide your kingdom. Did he even argue with God? Do you remember a storyline before this where God said, I am going to destroy all of this particular city? And somebody else came back and said, oh, but Lord, yes, Abraham, where he pleaded. He stood in the... Yes, God, but if there be a hundred, if there be 
10, if there be five, right? That was, that was um, Lot. No, it wasn't Lot. It was Abraham. For Lot. Yes, for Lot. But Lot was the one who was in the midst of it. But Abraham was the one pleading, Lord, don't destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? If there not be even just one righteous. And I thought about Jeroboam about, did anybody go there in your thinking with this? I thought, wow, what if Jeroboam had pled before the Lord? Could we have had a different storyline? Yet God knew that he wouldn't. God chose him and his heart, knowing his heart, because God was bringing about what? And he makes this statement in the text itself, because he was about to do what? Fulfill his word to, to, that he spoke through his prophet to Jeroboam. He was going to fulfill it. His word is spoken, and God fulfills it, and no one gets in his way. And he always picks the right one. And it's not that God makes people do things, but God picks knowing who will do what. And he absolutely. So no excuses, right, Margaret? Even if you choose wrong, it does. And just because God knew that you were going to choose wrong, doesn't mean God made you choose wrong. Because one of the principles about humanity is we have free will. And that free will is what leads to relationship with God. And apart from that free will, um, it would, you would just be puppets. There'd be no point, right? How many times in, in the text that we're looking at so far have you seen where God gives them a choice and then they end up choosing poorly right so over and over again God said for instance he made a promise to David David if you will follow me faithfully if you will keep my statutes and my commandments right I will do what I will that's right I will establish you and your kingdom forever Yes. Yes. Okay, so God always gives us choice. And if there's no point to the choice, why would he do that? Right? So one of the things that we really learned very strongly as we're studying the kings and the prophets here is that the point to God giving you choices is that you make the right choice. But God's desire, he says in the New Testament, he desires that none should perish, no, not one. Now, that is his desire, but is that the truth of the reality? If, if our choosing was God's desire, I desire that all men come to know me. I desire that. If that's all it required is that God desires it, do you think it would be done? But it, but it isn't done. What, what's, what's the quality of this equation? Our free will, and it has to be factored in. Okay. All right, so here we have another storyline along that. Let's go, let's go look at 1 Kings first to get started there. Because now we're with Jeroboam. Jeroboam has 
been used of God. He's been given all these, his, his ten kingdoms. We know from last week he established a false worship system. God gave Jeroboam the same promise of the same covenant he gave to David. David, if you will obey me, I will establish you. Solomon, if you will obey me, I will establish you. What, what happened with uh, Solomon? He did not obey, and so what happened? Ten parts of that kingdom were ripped. But for the sake of David, my servant, who was faithful, I retain those two at Jerusalem where my name is. Okay? So in other words, very interesting, isn't it? God kept his word to David, but he also kept his word concerning the, the, the Mosaic covenant where he says, if you obey me, I bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. If you obey me, I keep you on the land. If you don't, I rip you from the land. I mean, in other words, there's consequences going on here with Solomon's life. Now we're into Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam has not lightened the burden, so Jeroboam has come in very willingly, allowed God to rip ten parts of his kingdom away without a bat of an eye. He shouldn't have done that, but he did. God knew he would. It's interesting because the first thing you think is, well, yeah, but God said he would. Well, yeah, God said he would, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was the best, right? Remember I talked a couple weeks back ago about there's God's um, perfect will, but then there's also God's permissive will. And in God's permissive will, he allows man this realm of free will. To make choices and to make decisions. And we, saw, we see that Jeroboam chose poorly. Because when Jeroboam's turn came and God said, if you will follow me and obey me, I will establish you forever. What is the very first thing we read about Jeroboam in the next chapter? He establishes his own worship system with two golden calves and says, behold your gods you brought you up out of Egypt. A total slap in the face to God. Unbelievable. And what would have God's answer have been? At Jerusalem, where I put my name. Which means he would have had to trust God to hold the hearts of the people for him, even though they were going back into the land of Judah to do their worship, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, he did and he didn't. If he had put his faith in, you tell me, if he had put his faith in... Right. Yes. But my point is, if God came to me and said, Katie, I'm going to give you whatever. And I knew that even though he's giving it to me, that it was going to be a problem in another area. Should I then break a law of God in order to make sure that mine is secure? Or should I just trust God that he's going to keep mine secure? Yes. He should have, he should have talked to God about this. Okay. Yes. The whole thing is about these men not having real relationship with God. So let's go back now and look. We're, we're going to precede now. We had gotten to the end of Jeroboam last week, but now we're going to back up and fill in a little bit of more information. After the time when the hand was withered, 
um, after the time that the prophet had come in and, and pronounced a condemning of the altars that he had established and condemned the priests that he had established, right? Now we see in 1 Kings 14, we see that he has a young son who has become sick. Now there's a lot of talk about this young son. It may be an only son or it may be his firstborn son who was the one to be uh, the receiving of the, of the throne by tradition, right? But whatever it is, his name is Abijah. We have a problem, right? Abijah is, is, is um, the same name as Rehoboam's son, Abijah, who comes up next. I know, so you got two Abijahs. You just have to know. So I marked them completely different on my text. When I marked them as keywords, I made sure that my Abijah here in this, and he's going to disappear then. He won't come back up again. The other Abijah, who is the king, will keep on going. Thank goodness. We can at least keep, at least for, we only have to know in one chapter that there's another Abijah. It's like having two Johns or two Eric's or, or two Susans or two Marys in the same room. It gets confusing, right? All right. So let's talk about 1 Kings 14. What ha what's going on in 1 Kings 14 on the whole? What do you see as the story line? Okay, he has a son who's sick, and he's, and he's going to send him back to get a word from a true prophet about what's going to happen concerning his son, from the true God, okay? Very good. Okay, do you have that verse in 1 Kings 13 before you? Okay, so it concludes with talking about a blotting out and destroying it from off the face of the earth. Now, this is very interesting because one of the things you have to keep in mind when you're looking at the kings is what is the purpose to the writing of the kings? What are they trying to accomplish in this record? It's a historical record of the kings, right? The kings. So you're following the king. What happens with the king? Now, what do you seem to think might be the purpose for us getting an insight about the king and its and the leadership of that nation. Well, one of the things he didn't want kings, but by following the kings, what are we learning? Very good, Margaret. You nailed it, girl. Woo! Star for the day, girl. Did you hear what she said? Say it again louder. tends to be that way. If your nation has a strong leader who is godly and following God, then the nation tends to follow in that same way. This is a principle which we know is kind of true, even in our own history. Tends to be that way. We know that it can go the other way, so don't talk about the, the exceptions to the rule. But what God is showing us in here is he's showing us the king and its leadership for that people. And it's showing us that the leadership has a high calling, which is why God m makes a, a, 
a higher accountability to a leader, right? They get, they're under stricter uh, examination by the Lord in many ways. And th this high calling is because the leadership can so completely affect the nation. The laws are established by the kings, right? Think of our own nation and the laws that are being established by our leaders, the people that we have put as our representatives in government to lead us. They, if you take it to a city level, it's your mayors and your city council. If you go up to a bigger, it's your house of representatives, the Senate, and the president. So these people are establishing laws and they're either allowing or not allowing the people to go one way or another. So in the record that we're looking at right here, what we saw where Kathleen took us at the end of, uh, was that a, a 13, the end of 1 Kings 13, we see that God concludes Jeroboam showing us that he had basically not learned his lesson through the, all the experiences that God gave him, all the supernatural signs that he had given him, yet he still refused to see and obey and recognize God. And in that, then God made a condemnation about what he's going to do because of his leadership, right? So now we're backing up when we go to 14, and we're getting a little bit more about the story about how God went about doing that. How is God going to bring about the end of Jeroboam? So that's where we're at. All right, so Jeroboam, we see in this one, what is the conclusion for Jeroboam? What does God say about him in this chapter? What is the conclusion? For the house of Jeroboam, what's going to happen? It's going to be blotted out. It says, what is this? Somebody read verse 10. Therefore, do you remember when you see a, a therefore? What do you see the therefore there for? It's to say what's happening therefore, right? It's what is it there for? Okay, so what does it say? Okay, so our major point, in, oh, this is the theme. Okay, our major theme that's going on in here is, and the rest of it's all details about this conclusion. What we're, what we're getting to in this storyline here is, how did God go about bringing him to an utter end, blotting him out from off the face of the earth? Okay, and from all, out, of the, out of the lineage even of of. Uh, Israel as a nation. So we see, let's look in verses 1 to 3 then. The first three verses shows us the story about his son Abijah, right? And Abijah is sick, and what does he do? Yeah, and really interesting, because I do think this sets the tone. How did he send his wife in there to get an answer about his son? In a disguise. Is that not deception big time? Why be so deceptive? What does that tell you about the character of this man? First of all, he's scared. Why is he scared? Because he knows he's wrong. He knows he's already offended God. He knows that, that what, he's, what he has done before the Lord has been wrong. And yet, also, what does he know? He knows who the right place is to go to. He knows the difference between the gods which he created with his own hands and the true God of Israel. 
right? So he, he sends his wife Abijah, his wife to Abijah to, in disguise, or Ahijah, sorry. Okay, so Jeroboam, he sends his wife in disguise. Uh, to the pro- uh, what was the prophet's name? A H I J A H. Okay, this is my symbol that I always use for my prophets, and then I color them in whatever. And I, each prophet gets its own little colored horn, so that helps me remember that I'm looking at a prophet there. Okay, so Jeroboam sends his wife in disguise to the prophet Ahijah. So that tells you right there a ton of things. He knows he's wrong. He knows where to go to get what's right, you know. And he also knows that that uh, he's willing to be deceptive about it. That tells you a lot about his character. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I laugh at some of these TV shows, too, how people, when they have, uh, have uh, something going on in their life that they can't explain, and so they, they turn to everything except to the church. They never go to God and say, God, what is truth about what's going on in my life right now? They don't do that. They're willing to believe the lies, but they're not willing to believe the truth. You know, they're willing. If they believe the truth, we have to change. We have to turn. Right. Yes, exactly. Now, what, is, what happens in verse 4 and 5 then? I love this part, too, about the storyline. Because it shows you something about what's going on in the relationship between God and his servants. Yeah. So God... <laughs> so the Lord forewarns um, Ahijah. And you can finish that out with more words if you want, what it is that he warns him about. But I think it's pretty funny. She, he has his wife go into, and they have this whole elaborate thing all thought out. Bring, this, bring a gift of uh, a poor man, right? What did he think Ahijah, if Ahijah was truly a prophet, how could he even begin to think that he could fool him? It's just, the whole thing's kind of ridiculous. Okay, 6 to 14 then. I I clumped it kind of all together in 6 to 14. And what do you see going on there? Okay, the bad news is given to to Jeroboam. Jeroboam's bad news. I love, what did the Ahijah do when the wife appeared before him? First, before she even said a word, first of all, there's a little tidbit given to us about, about the prophet. What is, he's blind. So the disguise was pointless. It's like putting on makeup for someone who's blind. It's like, what's the point, right? All right, so he, she enters in, she's disguised. He immediately basically says, man, you've been busted. I already know who you are, right? So right, then he says to her, I think was interesting, who was sent to whom? The wife was sent to whom? To, to the prophet. But what does the prophet then say in response to her? Yeah. 
I have been sent to you. Very interesting. He's turning the tables on her, isn't he? You're not, you've not been sent to me. I've been sent to you. you. That's a contrast. You can make that as a little contrast point in there. You think you've been sent? No, I've been sent. I and I have a message for you. So then Ahijah he pronounces um, calamity. Or and you know, you could say a lot of things. Um, that he exposes Jeroboam's evil or, I mean, there's a lot of things you could say about that because it goes on there. One of the things he says that he, in there, he, he makes the statement that uh, Jeroboam has done more evil than all before him, right? And he is not, he says, um, he, I think it's interesting that he, first thing he does is he, he says, the Lord of Israel, because I exalted you, Jeroboam, He's making the statement to the wife, look, I exalted your husband. And yet your husband did not in any way honor or, or regard that gift which I had given to him, this opportunity of greatness and of, of eternal godliness and name. He rejected it. He says, I have exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me. Can you imagine being this wife listening to this proclamation about your husband, that God is pronouncing him basically evil, condemning him before you? I can't imagine what her heart felt like at that moment, or maybe not. My, my heart would have been broken. Um, you also, he says about Jeroboam, have done evil, more evil than all who were before you. How much of a lasting impact then does Jeroboam's work in his lifetime have? When we get to Ezekiel, which we've already done our study on Ezekiel, what is still going on in the land of Egypt? idolatry all these same things all these same idol worships are still going on years and years down the road which Jeroboam established on the land of Israel for his people having made other gods molten images provoked the Lord into the angel now God now um, Celeste sorry Kay had us do a um, a little bit of a study on pagan worship right? She said, go in and look at the high places and the altars. What kind of insights did you come to? Or were there anything, was there anything new that you learned when you looked at that? Horrible, horrible things went on. Um, all these high these pagan high places of animals and sometimes of human beings took place. Religious prostitution or homosexual acts were common. Um, promiscuity and um, breeding among human beings was supposed to influence animals and crops so they would have these orgies basically in their, in their worship uh, systems. It, just horrendous things. So these are the kinds of things that, that he set up, he established for Israel to do. All right, now, 
let's go to the next part. Let's just skip on beyond that, though, because I do think it was pretty, I thought it was pretty self-explanatory, but uh, for the sake of people who may have not known that, it was, it was needful, I think, for her to make that assignment for us. Okay, now in um, 15 to 16, what is follows, once Ahijah is pronounced uh, calamity and guilty of evil, then what, is, what follows it in 15 and 16? What does the Lord say? Okay. Oh, he talks about a, about a judgment that's about, that is going to come now. This is very interesting. What is he speaking of here that we are really familiar? We've already went, we did this early on when we looked at um, um, Israel's history. When we went back to Deuteronomy and so forth, right, 28 and 29. When they came on the land and they had made their initial um, uh, covenant with Moses, what did Moses tell the people specifically about the land? If you obey God, he says, okay, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. But when he went to the cursings part, what did he say specifically about the land? If they were disobedient, he would remove them off the land. So is he saying anything new here? Is God pronouncing something new? No. All he's doing is repeating what he has already said to, to Israel throughout all the generations preceding this, right? He says, and the Lord will... Um, Strike Israel because of their sin, and the Lord will remove you off the land. I know, isn't it amazing how, how specific he is on his, on his prophecies to them? He tells them exactly where they go. All right, now in 17 and 18, what happens then? God has also told her in this judgment that something is going to happen to her son, which is? Now, this verse I loved. I never knew this verse was in here. Um, let me see if I can find it. Where is it? Uh, where, the son, where he talks about the son, and the son's going to die. Verse 18. Okay, that's not it. Oh, maybe I'm in the wrong chapter. He says he 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 says uh, something good has been found in him. Which verse is it? Okay, there it is. <laughs> okay, I thought this was amazing. I'm sorry, I missed it, but it just came to my mind. I remember um, back when my my grandchildren were born, born too early, and a post was made this week that m reminded me of the, that whole event and um, these tiny little babies I held in the palm of my hand, and they were too young to make it in life. They were 20 weeks. Twin boys, adorable. All their toes and all their fingers, and I could tell who looked like who, and it was just a sweet thing, and I held them in the palm of my hand, and, and, and it breaks your heart, you know, when life is cut short so soon. And um, in here, at, at the time that that happened to me, I, there was a, I was still working uh, as a corporate chaplain, and one of my fellow workers, another chaplain that was uh, on duty, he came to me, and I was telling him about 
my grandsons and so forth and how sad it was. And, and he quoted a verse to me out of Samuel. Um, I think it was 2 Samuel 12 where David is talking about his son that is going to be taken by the Lord, right, in judgment against um, their their sin against David's sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah and so the life of the child is taken and and of course it sounds just horrific right that God would judge the child for the father's sin and yet this is in fact what happens and you think wait a minute isn't that like punishing the child for what the father did but if you look at this from an eternal perspective what do you see about this well that's right. David says in his conclusion about it, when he's, when he's confronted and talked and says, wait a minute, you're mourning before he died, but now you've washed your face and you're fine. And he says, yes, but um, he cannot come to me, but I shall go to him. And in that statement, what you see is that God gives life to the, ch to the young child that dies too soon, right? That there's eternal life, that his life is not gone forever. That little baby waits for David in heaven, and David knows this. And through utterance of God's uh, prophetic word, he gives an insight and a truth that you and I don't always get to grab hold of because there's really no teaching on it in Scripture. It's more something that's just sort of mentioned in passing. We see it again here. This is really cool. I did not know about this verse. I'm going to add it to my Samuel one because people so often ask, to, ask me, what happened to my little baby that died so early? Do they go to heaven? You know? Well, you say, of course... Right, but prove it. Show me the scriptures. So now I, we have two. One is in Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, where David is speaking about his son. I shall go to him, though he shall not be able to come back to me on this earth. I will go to him when I die. I'll be with him in eternity. He makes that statement. Well, here he says in 1 Kings 14 about this son that is going to die because of his father's sin. He says, I am going to wipe Jeroboam off the face of the earth. I'm going to wipe out every one of his, his male inheritors, right? This very interesting, um, well, I won't go there. Um, okay, so he said, uh, Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Now, this is really significant because remember when the, when the man of God was uh, killed uh, by the lion when, when he had disobeyed God. And then the prophet took him back and buried him. But one of the judgments that God pronounced against him was, you will not be buried with your, your family in that burial site. But God did give him an honorable burial, and he was mourned, which is very, very significantly important to the Jewish tradition and mindset, apparently according to their their understanding about life and eternal life, there was some kind of a link that, that pertained to the fact of being buried and being honored in death. Uh, people who were left to the dogs and for, to the birds of the air, what was the symbolic picture in that to them? Eternal separation from God, no glory for them in death. There would be no eternal glory for them. That's what they... It's just a mindset. It's not a not a, a a doctrinal truth. It's just a mindset of the of the people at the time. So God said to him about his this one son. He says, "All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because why? In him something good was found toward the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam." God knew the heart of this little boy who was dying. God was going to allow him to die. 
but God was going to also allow him an honorable death and a burial and a mourning, which was a significant symbolic picture in the minds of those people that God was honoring him. But from that day forward, what was going to happen with the rest of Jeroboam and his family? They would be eaten by dogs or by the birds of the air. They would not have a burial. Which tells you that God is saying, I am looking forward in history and I am seeing there are, there are no good hearts towards me from after your son. But your son, your son Abijah, and I can't remember what Abijah means, but it's something like um, the Lord is my God or something like that. His name means that. And Jerob, Jer, uh, Abijah found, was found in favor before the Lord. Made me think about Daniel. Do you remember in the book of Daniel chapter 5 when um, uh, Belshazzar and he had the handwriting on the wall and God talks about your very life breath is in the palm of the, of the hand of God and yet you've not bowed before him. And he said that tick, Tickle, tickle, Manny, whatever. I can't remember, right? Tickle, tickle. Okay, so <laughs> that's my, my interpretation of the, of the language. But anyway, um, he says, basically, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. So in that, we see a picture of God knowing the hearts. He knows the hearts before anything ever happens. He knows the hearts before they are, they are in the womb. He knows the heart before even one deed happens. There's a psalm that talks about that. I foreknew you. I knit you together in your mother's womb, right? I knew all your days before even one of them came into being. And so God, who is the all-knowing, he knows the heart. Here we see a little glimpse of that. I love this verse. This is my favorite verse for the whole study. Is another little picture of the fact that God knows the hearts and those little babies. God examines the heart. He knows. He knows whether they have a heart that would have been his or not. Only because God's all-knowing. Not because God chooses for us. But God knows. And so he says, I see in him something good toward me. And therefore... I'm going to honor him in his burial. I love that part of the storyline. Okay, that's kind of a sidetrack, but let's get back to 17 and 18. We see that Jeroboam's son dies. And I'm going to add, as God said, right? Because, again, it shows the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. 19 and 20... We, is the closing of this, and then it tells us the conclusion of Jeroboam, and what does it say about him? Okay. Okay, so we see that he dies and Nadab becomes king. It's very interesting that in this particular one, it doesn't actually give us a condemnation or a, or a positive either way uh, as a conclusion statement, but have we already had that in the previous chapter? It had already concluded that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those who have been before him. So God had already proclaimed him. What did you do about your heart on your chart? You colored it dark or light? A dark heart. So we gave him a dark heart because he did evil, more evil even than all those before him. Then we had the, the um, that took us all the way through 1 Kings 20. That concludes um, Jeroboam's life, correct? 
we are going to do Nadab bat next. So that's the whole that's the whole interesting part about this particular uh, study. This is kind of like a TV series. Have you ever had watched TV series where they get you to an end, but it's not really an end, and you have to wait for the next season so that you can pick up the next part of the storyline, right? Well, that's where we're at. Nadab is the next series, <laughs> series two, which is coming next. Okay, now we're going to move from what happens then in, if you wanted to, in general, you could say verses 1 to 20 are Jeroboam. 1 to 20 is Jeroboam. Okay, now we're going to do 21. Uh, and it takes us, and I forgot to put it on my chart, believe it or not. I was tired. To 31. So we're going to talk it through, and I'm not going to get it. I don't have room to write it down up here. So you'll get it later. Okay, tell me what do you see in 21. Rehoboam, right? So we see, we have Rehoboam then reintroduced. Again, remember, what Kings does is records the kings of Israel. And Kings gives you a balance of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. So they've told you now what's going on with Jeroboam in the northern ten kingdoms. All evil. They've got their own worship system. They're not following the Lord. Jeroboam is utterly going to be wiped, wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, we're going to have another king that's going to come later, Nadab first, but eventually God's going to completely be done with Jeroboam's house, and then another king will come on even after him. But now he's flipped. they're flipping. So this is one of those almost like a schizophrenic moment. We get to switch now from the northern kingdoms. We're going to go back to the southern kingdom. So now, starting in verse 21, we're with Rehoboam. So now we're in the southern kingdom. And so uh, this particular record that this chronicle gives to us or that this author is giving to us is about Rehoboam. And what does it tell us about Rehoboam? Very interesting. Did you, do you think that that was a significant point? Of what significance is it to us, Margaret? Yeah, they were supposed to wipe them off the face of the earth, right? And, and the fact that he married someone that was an enemy of Israel was really bad. So that's so Rehoboam going crosses him Very interesting. So Rehoboam's dad is who? Solomon. Solomon. Sol one of Solomon's life was an wives was an Ammonite. And, in, and the Ammonites were not supposed to be intermarried with, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where it says, when you enter into the land, do not marry the people of the land. If you, there's, a, there's a history there of partial obedience, and the, but not fully, completely doing it. But the biggest thing is this. There, apparently, there was someone who remained of the Ammonite. And what did Solomon do? He married her. Just exactly what God said do not do, right? And my question to you about how significant is that in verse 21, did you notice something in verse 31? They repeat it. If God repeats something, is, do you think there's a reason for that? As an inductive Bible study student, the observation should be, that's interesting, it's a repeated statement. And if it's repeated, there's a significant point or truth to it, right? So in 31, he says again, and his mother's name was Nema, 
the Ammonitis, and then it goes on to say who follows him, right, at the conclusion of it. So the fact that it's mentioned in there twice is significant. Now, knowing what's going on with Rehoboam, at the end of Rehoboam's uh, life, what do we see has happened with him? Uh, go back to Second Chronicles 12, look at 13 to 16 area. Uh, look in verse 14. This is Rehoboam. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. So at the end of Rehoboam's life, again, he does evil. This is God's judgment call on him. His, his heart is not set towards seeking the Lord. So why, why the repeated statement about the Ammonite why, uh, mother? What do you think the influence has been apparently towards her son Rehoboam? I th- Yeah. Yes. Isn't that amazing to you? There's Rehoboam. He is the one that's the guard, the guard in the and the the lineage of the house of David, and he is in Jerusalem, where the temple, and it's so easy for him to go there. And yet, he has allowed his own people still to build high places, probably to honor his mom. Now, um, I can tell you that, you know, even in our recent history, we can see people who have favorable um, feelings towards idolatry or foreign gods based on the fact that that's their family heritage. It It influences their thinking. It influences them emotionally how they feel about certain things. And they have a certain sympathy towards or a propensity towards wanting to either grant them permission or grant them that ability, and also even a sense of feeling of good towards it. Um, in, a, in a way, it's an awful lot like what I said about my experience in Turkey, where I have all these great experiences, and I tend to have a favorable uh, viewpoint of Turkey on the whole, and yet I'm smart enough to also know who is, it, who is Turkey as a nation. You know, Are they really our friend? No. And so although we, we diplomatically try to retain good relationships, we know that their God and our God are distinctively different, and therefore, there draws a red line in the sand for us. And as Christians, you need to know whose side are you on. Apparently, Rehoboam had not come to that moment of reality for himself. He had a mom who was an Ammonite, And in the scriptures, it repeats it twice, and it repeats it twice at the beginning of the statement about who he is and at the close of it in this particular record. And this this particular record basically shows us with with these bookends about his mom that his mom had a significant influence on him. Interesting. Just a little. See, one of those things that you learn when you're doing your inductive stuff that you wouldn't pick up on otherwise. It's just very insightful. Okay, so Jer- um, I'm not going to write this part down. So Jeroboam, in, in the verse 21, we see about Rehoboam. He reigned for 17 years over the city which the Lord had chosen. I just think that's powerful, right? Uh, 22 to 24 then under his leadership as its king for 17 years, it's not like a four-year presidency or even an eight-year president. We're talking 17 years. What happened to his nation in 17 years, according to verse 22? Unbelievable. 
So his influence on his nation was to lead his nation into doing evil. Even though he sat in the hot seat of God's ordained chosen city, he sat in Jerusalem right where the temple is. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know what I'm saying. And yet his people did evil. That's the influence. And that is what the record of the kings is. It's to show us what the influence of the king has had upon their people. Okay, so that's what we're supposed to be learning here is what is the influence of a leader on its people? Here we see they did evil in the sight of the Lord and they provoked God to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and the asterisk on every hill and beneath every tree. They were also made cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had disposed before them and the sons of Israel. Unbelievable. Part of this has got to be because his mom was Ammonite, and he allowed that to influence him. So what happened? What did God do? He did. He raised up an enemy, and who was the enemy? Shishak. I love that name. I love saying that. Don't you do that? Shishak. Sounds like a song. Somebody should write a song on Shishak. Um, it's going to have to be a bad song, though, because <laughs> he's not a good guy. <laughs> okay, so Shishak, he comes up, and he plunders Jerusalem and the people. It's very interesting. We don't see the record here, but they, they talk about, at the close of this, about the chronicles that are written on it, right? The book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. That's not the book of second, first and second chronicles. That's a totally different chronicles, just in case you might have that confused in your mind. These chronicles are records. I think we don't even have them anymore. I think they're gone, but they are recorded for us to know about. And so what this tells us, basically, is the writing of this book under inspiration of God he uses a variety of resources some of it is oral through through things that the people have told them and others are records that are given to him okay which is also explains why sometimes the record says a certain number in one place and a certain number in another because the two records were keeping records for different purposes right so there's different numbers sometimes um, that explains it anyway so he um Shishak comes against uh, Jerusalem and takes away their treasures. Now, what does that tell you about what's going on then with Judah concerning they did evil? Who's sending Egypt? Who's allowing Egypt to even enter into their land? Isn't that amazing? Because the promise to, uh, of God to this people Israel was, if you will obey me, I will subdue your enemies before you, Right? You will be the head and not the tail. Well, it sure looks to me like in this account, they're the tail. Because not only did Shishak come in, and it says that he, um, he took many of their fortified cities, and apparently there were hundreds of them, like 156 or something like that. It was some big number. He took a lot of their fortified cities. Uh, it's in another record. And one of the sermons I heard, the guy quoted from one of his resources where they got those numbers. So it was a bunch of cities he took. Well, now he not only takes those fortified cities, which we had seen earlier in Rehoboam's reign, where he built them up to protect him. They did not protect him. Because when he sinned against God in those 17 years, then God sent judgment. The judgment was called Shishak. And when he came up, he comes in, he plunders the temple, and not only the temple, but the palace of the king himself. I thought this was interesting, though. It says that he took um, away what? 
One of the things that's really brought significantly to the forefront is the shields of gold. And then what does Rehoboam do as res in response? He makes them of bronze. Now, this is very interesting. What do you think is going on here? Okay, first of all, they're poor. I heard that the gold shields were equivalent to $800,000 or a million. I can't remember. It was a bunch. No, all, the totality of all the shields was 800. I wrote it on a piece of paper at home. I'll have to look it up. 800,000 or 800 million. I can't remember. It was a bunch of money for, for these shields. But the ones, it, it was 800 million. I'm pretty sure of that now that I think of it. Because 8,000 then is what the bronze shields were equivalent to in, in value. But what was the point of replacing gold with bronze? What do you think was his thinking? Kind of looks the same, don't you think? If, if they used to stand there with the gold shields, right? Gold is about the same color as bronze, similar, right? So what do you think was his thinking in this? Pretending that everything is just fine. It's just fine. He's putting on a pretense. He's putting on a facade. Have you ever known people that try to pretend like they're richer than they really are by the things that they buy or the things that whatever? So here we have a, a picture of that. The other thing that this really shows to me is by replacing that which was taken away and replacing it with something that was similar so that they give this facade, what do you think is going on in this man's heart? Pride? Is there any kind of real repentance in this, an acknowledgement that God has judged him for sin? There you go. See, the insights you can get just by looking at some of these little tiny things, amazing. So, yeah, and they're all gone. Everything that, that Solomon had collected is now gone. All the treasures, all the gold, all the, and all those fortified cities, too, that Rehoboam himself amassed. Yeah, gone. Very interesting. Okay, so you conclude then in uh, 25 to 28 that the treasures of Jerusalem are taken away by Egypt, right? And then 29 and 30, then what? That he died. And not only that, but there was war continually between the north and the south. This is civil war going on between the north and the south. I'm sorry, say that again? Oh, yeah, way back. Don't fight your brother. I know, and then and now they are. Yeah. Again, it's a defiance against... Again. One of the things was that he told him, don't fight him because this is God's will that I rip these from the kingdom. It's my judgment against Solomon. So he told Rehoboam, don't fight Jeroboam on this. Don't go back to try to reclaim those ten... Uh, tribes because I've given them to him. Don't fight your brothers, right? Well, now here we have later in his life they're fighting their brothers. 
But we don't know who's fighting who or, I mean, we don't have the whole storyline of who, who instigated what if he's fighting against him. But, it's, but it is very interesting. So now we're going to go back and look at Chronicles. Second Chronicles 12, real quickly. This is where we see a little more in-depth about the storyline between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, right? When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, and all Israel with him forsook the Lord, it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Okay, so now we're back to Shishak and against Rehoboam's um, issues with him. We see in verses 1 to 4 what has happened. Okay, say that again. I couldn't hear you. Okay, and I started it by Judah was unfaithful. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like the so. So, um, they're fortified cities. I think that's really pretty funny that they're fortified, quote, fortified cities were captured. There you go. I did mean to bring that point out. That's why I kind of read it in the way that I did. Exactly. How often does that happen in our lives? That once you're strong, once you think you're strong, once you think that you're set, that life is good, or at least maybe life is good. Maybe things are going well for you and you're financially pretty secure. And all of a sudden then, what happens to a person's heart concerning God when life is going so well, generally. You start to take it for granted. Or you can even do a turnabout and begin to walk away from the Lord, you know, falling away from the, the, the faith that you once relied on to get you through day to day because you were struggling. Now that you're going, things are going great. Do you remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? What had he been doing? He was lounging around in his palace at that point because war was finished and he was now basically resting. And so because his guard was down, his prayer life was not fervent with God. Now he becomes a victim to temptations and situations. Glenn. The danger for all of us is when, when life starts to get really comfortable, that's when what should we really do? 
you better be pressing into God. One of the things I always tell people, you know, when they think things are going pretty good and they don't seem to have a whole lot, press into God's word, begin to Bible study like crazy, build up your power because that's very shortly a trial will come and things will become hard for you again. And what is essential for you as a believer is that you have the word of God to fall back on so that you do not forget who your God is, who's the sovereign over your life and this world, and so that when hard times come also that you don't fall into temptation, the temptation of taking the wrong path to a solution. Like like what Jeroboam did when he got fearful that the people would go back to Jerusalem instead of relying on what he know is true about God, that God said, I'm giving you this, and if you will follow me, I will bless you and establish you forever. And if he had just trusted God in that and allowed the people to go back to Jerusalem and worship and come back home, everything would have been fine. He was fearful of it, but he didn't need to be. But it's because he let his guard down. He did not, or, or he didn't have it up to begin with. All right. Mm -hmm. I think that it's talking about how long he walked with God faithfully, and then things went badly. He was doing well. Then after that, things started. Somewhere between the third and the fifth, he took a nosedive. And I really think a lot of it has to do with what it says here in the opening of this particular chapter. It says that when he was uh, established and strong, so those first three years, he was establishing himself and becoming strong. And then he, he has this period of time when basically he stops trusting in the Lord and turning to the Lord. Remember Rehoboam at the beginning of his reign, when the prophet came to him and rebuked him and said, don't do that, he obeyed, right? And it says that he, he and the people were worshiping the Lord at that point. But then after that, we don't see it anymore. I don't know. I'd have to look at that more carefully. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't do that part of the homework. So did anybody? Did anybody try to timeline that question? See, your rabbit trail is a good one, but I didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't go on that rabbit trail. Right. Okay. Let me just move this along a little bit here and go over here. I'm going to look at Second Chronicles 13 real quick where it says war. It's war between um, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, right? I've shortened that very, very much. Um, and what we see is that he is, in verses 1 to 7 of verse 13, um, 
Let's go and look at that real quick, because this is really interesting in here, because you're bringing up the point about humbling himself and what the response of God was and so forth, and I really do want to get to that. So I wanna, I'm going to jump ahead from 12. We're just going to leave that lay, because 12 kind of, we'll pick it up in 13 if that's okay, and you can look at the chart when I send it out to you later on the rest of 12. What we see in 12 is that Israel, it says Israel humbled themselves, so the Lord granted them a measure of de- deliverance. In um, 12, Shishak took their treasures, Rehoboam humbled himself, and the Lord's anger turned away, and then Rehoboam did evil. But I want to go to 13, because in 13, it's the same kind of storyline, but it, it deepens it a little bit in this part. He says, Abijah began the battle with an army of valiant warriors of 400,000 men, uh, while Jeroboam drew up a battle formation. So the first one is a battle between who? Uh, Rehoboam and Shishak? Am I right? wrong on that? Okay. So this is his war here. And here's another war. This is his war between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So both of them are about wars, correct? Thirteen is Jeroboam and Abijah. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Abijah. You're right. Wrong king. Abijah and uh, Jeroboam. Right? Because Jeroboam keeps being everybody's problem. Right? But what what we're seeing here is war, war, war. That's the theme. There's war going on. What was God's promise to Israel if they would follow him? Peace, right? Enter into the rest of God. (laughs) Remember that whole idea, the concept, the picture in the scriptures of Israel entering onto their land was entering into the rest of God. That in God they would rest, that God would give them plenty, that they would have a land of milk and honey, that their enemies would be subdued before them, that um, the Lord would make them plentiful and fruitful and, and life would be good because they would be obedient to the Lord. Are we seeing Israel have all those great treasures? that God promised them. They're as bad as the kings. The kings are being promised, if you will follow me and do as I, as I have commanded, I will establish you, your throne forever. I will, I will make your kingdom be an eternal thing. But in the, every case of these kings, with the exception of David, they did not do that. And so now what we're seeing here in 12 and 13 in Chronicles is how the people and how the nation itself is constantly at war, both north and south. Right? Okay, so in Chronicles 13, we're going to look at this war between Abijah, who is the son of Rehoboam. And, of course, again, we're, we're back into Judah. We're still in, this, in the uh, south. And we see that, they, uh, that there is a war between he and Jeroboam. Now, in 1 to 7, and the reason I'm jumping ahead is because I want to get onto the subject of the idea about... Um, um, not the word humility, it's the word humbled, that they humbled themselves. Because this is really an important point, and it's why I was late this morning a little bit coming in, because I stopped to do some homework on it. (laughs) I know, it's terrible, I can never stop. Okay, what do we see in verse 1 to 7 then? What happens here? What what does it say that, um, okay, there's a war going on, 
Oh, I, I see what I'm doing. I'm in the wrong one. That's why I had the wrong name. I had the wrong, uh, wrong observation worksheet open. Okay, Chronicles. Now I got the right king. Avijat says it so, right here. <laughs> Amazing, when you just turn open the page to the right spot. Okay, see, the problem is the stories are all so much alike. <laughs> they all look the same when, you look, when you're reading them. Okay, in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 13, uh, the year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Geba. Now, after you looked at the Ammonite mom, what did you learn? Did you look at Uriel and the and the Gibe, and Geba? Oh, you didn't. Did anybody do it? Because I saw the Ammonite one and looked that one up. Well, then when I got to the next one, I went, oh, I better look this one up too. Well, this one is actually of Judah. Okay, so this is all, all these names, I've got the list somewhere. Um, Urel, it means, the name Urel means God, or El, is my light. Micaiah means who is like God. And Gibba is a place in the, in the mountain district of Judah. Or it could be Ephraim. It does, it's not sure. There's like three, three things that are told you, but all three related to Israel. So it's an Israelite connection, which is, I think, significant. Because so what it's saying is this, this connection here is Israel, which is good. Okay, now, uh, Abijah began the battle with an army of four, 400,000, while Jeroboam drew up a battle formation against him with 800,000, right? So they're outnumbered, right? Abijah took a stand against Jeroboam. What was it? On what foundation does Abijah take a stand against Jeroboam? What's his verbally? What does he claim as his foundation for? That's right. He does so by David. So he um, literally by his inherited uh, rights right, or by inherited covenant rights. Remember when I told you earlier about Solomon, how Solomon kept recognizing that he was on the throne because of the Davidic covenant God had with his father, that by that in he had inherited or had been blessed with the inheritance of this position? Well, we're seeing the same kind of message being given to us here, that by inherited, inherited covenant rights of David, he, Abijah, is basically saying on this foundation of this Davidic covenant, I have the upper hand here. I am the one who's in the right. And that's what he's making a claim of. Yes. Oh, the covenant of salt. Okay, and we didn't do a study on that, and I did not have time. Does anybody know about covenants of salt? Okay. Okay, so salt is always a, symbolically a picture of something that makes something be preserved. Symbolically would be eternal. And with David, it's a Davidic covenant, which is forever. And so uh, often when they would make covenants, they would actually use salt on the meat. And, it, and because, it, first of all, it flavors it. But also the salt is symbolic of pr preservation so that the covenant would be one which would be, have eternal, eternal value to it symbolically. So that's what that's talking about. Okay, by covenant of David, he makes his claims, right? David, he engaged in war.
and took his stand, right? And when he starts quoting the Davidic covenant, uh, do you think he's on good footing or bad footing at this point? Does this sound like a good thing or a bad thing for him? To say, oh, I'm remembering there's a covenant God had with David. Huh? It seemed to work for him very nicely, doesn't it? So on the one hand, although we're suspicious, and rightly so, of this man's true motives behind it, but yet nonetheless, is what he's declaring from his lips truth? Yes. And on that basis, God is going to honor him. Okay, not because his heart is all that right, although we're going to look at the humbling qualities of this, but we, we see that God does honor him in this. So he engaged in war, he took a stand by the covenant of David. So that's all good. He, he called on the power and the privilege of the Davidic covenant, and that was a smart move. Now, Abijah then engaged war against Jeroboam based on these inherited rights and this relationship then with, of Israel to the Lord. So it's, think national covenant, not personal covenant, okay? Do not confuse this with a personal relationship. Back it up and look at this as a national thing. And he's saying, based on the Davidic covenant about the nation Israel, I am laying claim of victory. And then he proceeds to make comparisons between his nation and this new, newly developed nation of the ten tribes which have gone into idolatry. So he makes some contrast. Did you look at all, did you do contrasts in that section of your homework? You know, we, often in the New Testament observations, we make lots of contrasts. But in the old, we, we don't do it as much. But in this particular segment, there's lots of contrasts. So I want to look at them real quickly because I think they're significant. One, he talks, about, it starts with the covenant of salt promised to David. That was in verse 5. Then the next thing he does is he makes a comparison about the kingdom of the Lord. And what does he compare it to? What kind of a kingdom do they have? And who is their, their, their Lord? Their calves. It's a kingdom of golden calves. I think this is really insightful. For, to me, it was really neat when I got this list done. Okay, the next thing he makes a comparison about is what? In verse 9, about the priest. And he talks about his, which are the Levitical priests, which we know God established, right? And set up, he instituted that. And he compares it to what kind of priest? I'm just going to call them illegitimate priests because, the, uh, the, you know, you can, it gets too lengthy otherwise. But illegitimate. They're priests from made from among all the peoples of the land, whomever Jeroboam chose, and they were not of the sons of Levi, as God had directed. Yes. Which is funny because he was 40-something years old when he took the throne. Okay, but young in experience as a king possibly. But, yeah, this goes back to what we said before about 
what should Jeroboam have actually done in response to God's offer to give him ten kingdoms? He should, have, he should have interceded on behalf of the nation for the sake of the covenant that God had given to them to be a nation. But he didn't do that, right? It's almost like when Rehoboam, his, what he said was right and God honored it. But many times when you're on the run for an office and certain folks will go and gravitate toward the message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Depend, uh, right. Right. And I think that Rehoboam got support of the remnant, if I'm using the word right. Well, uh, he had four 400,000 people came in. They were in his command under his authority as the king. So they were there to serve him as the king whom God had established. Um, so I really think that, I mean, you can think about a lot of the political other things that were going on. I'm sure there was a bunch of them. But what we do see is that that, um, that particular statement about worthless men that gathered around him and proved too strong for He is talking about what I just mentioned before. The inference in, in this, the subtleties of what's being said here, is the fact that the kingdom should have never actually been divided. The reason it was divided is because of Solomon's sin. And then Rehoboam, when he was offered the ten, he didn't even stand up to try to keep the kingdom united. He was a scoundrel, and everyone who followed him was a scoundrel in that regard. Somebody in that group should have said, hey, 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 God, this is your united 12 kingdoms. Why are we dividing it? But nobody did. That just shows how their hearts were. Nobody stood up and said, wait, 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 this is not right. There's right and there's wrong. There's moral right and wrong in this. And no one stood up for this. Okay, so in four we see the Lord, who is our God, he stands on, right? And what then about their God? What kind of gods do they have according to verse 10, 8, 9, 10? How does he identify them? Yeah, and they're golden calves, which are what kind of gods? I know, in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, it says, which are? No gods. <laughs> I love that. The fact that they are no gods, basically. He just debunks that they're even a god at all, right? Okay, and then in 5, he says arrogantly, which is not really true, but at least in principle on the surface they were doing it. He says, we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but what? But you have forsaken him. We keep the charge of the Lord because he's in, he's in Jerusalem. But Jeroboam and up in the northern king, kingdoms, they had forsaken him. Now, whether, uh, whether any of this claim is true or not true, what he's saying verbally is true, correct? On that basis alone, God is going to honor him. Now, what is very interesting to me, though, is in all the midst of all this, he, it's, he keeps talking back in the previous chapter in uh, 12 about humility. And I want to read to you something that, that came to me because I'm like, okay, back and forth, the subject of people who are humbling themselves. Here we see an action where it almost sounds like he's humbling himself, right? He's going back to the basic principles. 
Sounds like he's humbling himself before the Lord. Because he does humble himself, God is going to honor that. So there are some things in here that we're trying to learn about relationship with God and what does God respond to in our lives. Sometimes we may be even be insincere, but if we, if we perform the right action, God will still honor that. Okay. And so here, I, I did a word study. To humble means to bring low be subdued, to be brought into subjection, and it's about an attitude. It's an, an, an attitude of a proper low status, okay? But what it is not, guess what it is not? Even though you've been humbled, that doesn't necessarily mean you've come to repentance. Repentance is another word, and this is significant, I think, for us to talk about at this point when you're looking at these two events in Chronicles 12 and 13. In both cases, we look, we're looking at an action of being humbled and, uh, and understanding their position and where their power is, where they're, what they're supposed to be about. He's acknowledging all that. The one before, before it in chapter 12, um, the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous for bringing Shishak against us, right? Because we deserve it. So they were humbling themselves. Sounds like repentance, but was it? it will, we absolutely know it wasn't because in the end, they went right back to their evil ways. So let me just give you a, a, a flow of thought here. I looked up the word repent also. It means to turn back, to turn away, to turn from evil, right? In other words, it's the action, the first one, humility, is, is our attitude. You start with humility. You must be humbled before the Lord, and then you will turn and repent, hopefully. But sometimes you can be humbled, but you never actually repent. Okay, humbling, some, what, what, uh, what I think can happen is some people will, will act humble before you when they've done something wrong and they've been caught in it, but they only act humble because they know it's going to get them what they want or get them out of trouble. It's all about getting out of trouble. It's not about actually confessing sin and repenting of it. So here we see in Judah, in 1 Kings 14, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked God to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and so forth. And he says, and then in verse 25, he says, Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king, right? So in that, they took away these things. They humbled themselves because they were losing everything. Then he says, so King Rehoboam then, what does he do when everything's taken away? He makes shields of bronze to pretend like everything was just fine. He never actually, yes, and in the end, what do we see about his, the end of his life? He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those before him. So do not be confused when it says they humbled themselves. That is not repentance. They humbled themselves because they were forced to humble themselves. Have you ever had a child that you've had to do that with? You've had to force them to submit to you, even though you could tell in their heart they were really not sorry that what they did was wrong. And they don't turn from doing that. They go right back into doing it again. But that, and that is what Israel is doing here, and that is what these kings are doing here. They are humbled because they, they, they are put in a position where if they, if they do not humble themselves, they're going to not only lose all, at all, what was God going to do? Utterly destroy them. He was about to utterly destroy them. He did give a prophecy. He says, I am going to be one day take you off the land. Do you guys know how long in the future that is? 
from the point of that of him saying that and I think it was 200 years later God is going to take them off the land he's going to give them 200 years of doing this of this rocky road with him up and down doing good then not doing good quote humbling themselves but not really repenting they never get it right but God keeps giving them chance after chance after chance so mark in your text there, humbling is not repentance. And the evidence is at the conclusion of their life and Israel's life, what does God record? They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Babylon 70 years. Yeah, but we're talking about from the point of this judgment in 1 Kings 14 where he says, I am going to take you off the land. It's 200 more years before the, uh, the northern kingdom goes into Assyrian captivity. Then there's another 100 and something years and then Judah. And then Judah goes into their captivity. Right. Think of all those years. God is so patient. Okay, in the book of King, in Kings, they continue to do this. But Chronicles focuses in on who? The, on Judah, the southern kingdom. 